morning, Highland. If you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. This morning I'll be reading from John chapter 8. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are descendants of Abraham, yet you look for an opportunity to kill me because there is no place in you for my word. I declare what I have seen in the Father's presence. As for you, you should do what you have heard from the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Highland. Uh, I've I've heard this before. This is the first time I've ever said it. Um, the most important sermon you hear today is not going to be the one that I'm about to deliver. The most important sermon, well, that I'm going to hear. I'll speak for myself. The most important sermon I'm going to hear today was that Grace Simer serves my section communion. The most important sermon that you're going to hear today, and if you're new here, you don't know these two names, that's fine. Um, Doesn't matter. Um, Is I was, I had a a hold in my heart because I knew that John wouldn't be sitting in John's seat. And I I knew that was going to hit me. John's seat is full. In fact, that whole row is full. And I am deeply glad for the grace and the grace and the grace of God. Um, Pray with me, please. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for the way that your word goes out and lives among us. It takes seed and grows and produces fruit. Father, open our eyes that we see the fruit of your word, the power of your truth, the power of your love. And God, let us be a community that lives and thrives and dwells and feeds others in truth. To that end, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church says, amen. All right, so I'm going to tell you that there is a gathering that's going to start up on September 8th. This is available to all men. Uh, If you're in college, you're welcome to attend as well. This isn't exclusive. This includes you as well. Uh, It's going to be an intergenerational gathering, and uh, the the title is, is really curious for me this semester. The title is Monday Morning Disciples Disguised As, and then there's the dot, dot, dot. Um, and I love that. I love that because it puts the emphasis of our vision here as a church on front display. That what we experience right now isn't the point. This is the pep rally. 
The point is what we do in the, out there as we partner with God to restore Abilene, as we partner with God to restore the world. The reason that we gather here together is so that we are encouraged to go out. And so that is going to be a group of guys that tell stories together and think together and pray together about how do we do discipleship in the real world, in my job, in my place, in my family, on, not just on Sunday morning, but Monday morning. I also heard there's ice cream. So um, I want to encourage you to be a part of that. (laughs) I hope there's ice cream. There was last year. Um, I want to encourage you to be a part of that. I want you to be engaged in the ministry and the life uh, here at Highland. You need some smaller way to be a part of this community. And if you're not getting a smaller way, you're not getting the full intent of what God intends for church Christian community. If you look over here, if you're brand new, you look over here, you see those five signs over there. That's called our pathway, and that's what we expect of you. That's what we want you to engage in. If you're going to be a part of our church, if you're going to be a member, we need you to engage in worship together. You need to know who God is. You need to be engaged in a smaller section where you can know yourself and know each other. There needs to be a smaller environment for you to grow. And you need to grow. You need to grow spiritually. Your baptism is your inauguration against the fight of evil, and that is a serious task. And so you need to grow deeper and more completely into the image of God. And as you engage in those three three things, what you find is that you look more like Jesus. And you can't look like Jesus unless you face the cross, a way to pour yourself out for the sake of others, for the sake of our city, for the sake of the world. And so this sermon series, we're going to be here for a little while. We're going to plant ourselves very firmly in that baptism part of our pathway. We're going to be asking ourselves the question, how do we engage ourselves in the fight against evil? How do we look more like Jesus? And here's my thesis today. If you missed last week, we started this series, but this is, you haven't missed anything yet. The thesis that I'm going to offer today is the means by which the evil one, the devil, brings about the destruction of good and beautiful things that God desires for his beloved creation is lies. The evil one lies. And in the evil one's lies comes destruction. It twists what is good. It twists what is right. It warps reality in such a way that it brings about destruction. In fact, C.S. Lewis says that, you know, the evil one can't actually create anything. Evil is not creative at all. All it can do is break good things and ruin them. And so we're going to think together about the Satan, the devil, whatever prince of the heavens, whatever name you want to use. And, and you may have more questions about the devil that I'll, I'll, I won't be able to answer them all in this message. But actually, the Bible gives us a very developed, a clear understanding about the devil's identity and the origin and nature. And, and you don't need Dante's Inferno to fill in those blanks. We have a very clear idea from Genesis chapter 3 to the heavenly council, the Satan that appears in Job to the confrontation of Jesus with the evil one in Matthew and Luke, all the way to the, the end, the apocalyptic battle at the end of time in the book of Revelation. Scripture's clear. And in particular in John chapter 8, which is where we're going to be. If you have your Bible, maybe it's on your phone, maybe it's on paper, open up to John chapter 8 because you're going to want to be there with us today. Jesus gives us this education in the devil's lies. 
And so here's the context of John chapter 8, because I think sometimes if we're not careful to read the context of the, of the, of the conversation, we're going to miss kind of the, the tone of it. We're going to miss the stakes. Jesus is in Jerusalem in John chapter 8 for, the, for a festival. It's the festival of booze or tabernacles. And, and he's having this heated exchange with some religious leaders. And you can read this wrong if you're not careful. This is not like a friendly debate or some sort of like fact-finding sessions. But it's actually a very intense interaction. This is not Jesus getting up as like a, at a lecture stand in a podium in a classroom and, and one of the religious leaders kind of raises their hand and says, I have a clarifying question I'd like to ask, please. In, in John chapter 7, John tells us that Jesus wasn't even going to go to Jerusalem because he knew that the leaders there were trying to kill him. But he went anyway, and they do try to seize him, but they aren't able to. And so at the end of 8, they're so mad, they pick up stones in order to stone him to death on the spot. They're ready to murder in the street. You're about to hear Jesus tell them that their father is not Abraham. But their father is not God, like they think. That their father is actually the devil. So don't picture what's happening like what's happening in this room right now. Jesus at a podium. Think of it as a mosh pit, a crowd. Think of it as a mob of people. Probably it's happening on an open street. And you can imagine with me that Jesus' disciples are kind of surrounding Jesus at this point, And they realize that this crowd is getting more and more furious with one another. And they start whispering to themselves as they close ranks to protect Jesus physically that they're going to have to get out of here. Join with me in John chapter 8, verse 31. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, we are descendants of Abraham and never have been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? Now we can start off the bat and realize that what the religious leaders are saying is a lie. And you don't have to be Jewish to know that. You just have to be a student of Jewish history. After all, Moses is called by God to rescue the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. And then they are called and made a people. And they live as a nation, but then their nation is divided into two. The Assyrians come and take northern Israel away as slaves. And then the Babylonians come two generations later and carry the rest of Judah away as slaves. And Israel never gained sovereignty as a nation until after World War II. It's not until like 1948 or 9 where Israel becomes an independent nation again. In fact, these Jewish leaders, as they are saying this line to Jesus, they can see the Roman centurions that are patrolling the streets to keep them in line. So what do they mean when they say, like, we're, we've never been slaves to anyone? How can we be set free if we're not enslaved? Well, let's set their history aside. Because Jesus wants to talk about something even deeper. Jesus answered them very truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave doesn't have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. 
And so Jesus wants to up the ante. He wants to tell them, look, it's not just your story that's full of slavery. It's your life. And the problem is that these religious leaders have been so blinded by the lies that they have to tell themselves that they can't, they can't even hear what Jesus is trying to say. So if the Son makes you free, then you will be free indeed. I know that you are descendants of Abraham, yet you look for an opportunity to kill me because there's no place in you for my word. And I declare that I have seen the Father's presence. As for you, you should do what you've heard from the Father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, well, if Abraham was your father, then you would do what Abraham did. But you're trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth of what I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. So even if you can claim a biological connection to Abraham genetically, you're not holding into Abraham's teachings. You're indeed doing what your father does. They said, we're not illegitimate children. There's a less kind way to translate that, but I particularly appreciate how the NRSV makes that PG. We have one father, God himself. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, if you actually knew God, you would love me, for I came from God, and I'm not here. I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot accept my word. You are from your father, the devil. And you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his negative tongue for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Which, if you're following, has pretty implications, not unpretty implications for these religious leaders. Because I'm telling the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is from God hears the words of God. The reason that you can't hear them is because you are not from God. Here's my thesis. The devil is a liar. How can you tell when the devil is lying? It's when his mouth is moving. He always lies. He only lies. He lied and deceived and misled the Jewish leaders in Jesus' time. And he lies and deceives and misleads God's people today as well. Imagine how that conversation in John 8 would have gone a little bit differently if the Jewish leaders had not already bought into the lie of the evil one that was trying to form their identity. Form their identity in such a mal-shaped way that they can't even recognize God when God becomes flesh and is standing right in front of them. And I know that's probably easier than it sounds because I know that there are lies in me that are deeply rooted. But we have to have some sort of like kind of agreement on what truth is. Truth is that reflect the way things actually are. I chose the wrong shirt for this because this is like purple and white and blue and lighter blue. But you can say like this shirt is those colors and this shirt isn't red and green. There's no red and green in this shirt. Obviously, that's not true. That is true. Jesus said the truth will set you free. In fact, if you're a freshman here right now, here's like a fun project. Um, those words are on the campus of ACU. They're chiseled in stone somewhere. And I had a talk with, between first and second with one of my elders that's 
been in Abilene his whole life, and he said he always kind of looked up with question marks when he, when he saw those words. What does that mean exactly? The truth will set you free. But the reality is the, what Jesus didn't say was that the truth will be pain-free. But it's, it's so easy to believe the lie. It's so easy to believe the truth that the lie that's kind of swaddled, that's wrapped up in truth. And there's all of these, you know, kind of crazy conspiracy theories out there. And when you encounter them, you just, you, you walk into that room and you're like, whoa, this is weird. I mean, like, there are people that say that we didn't land on the moon. Uh, my favorite is, well, the others, other people that say that Bigfoot is real, like actually exists. Um, my favorite is that the Denver International Airport is actually a secret bunker for the lizard people, which I love because I'm from Colorado and all right. I know a bunch of lizard people in Colorado. They're not, anyway, um, but, you, but you, you encounter that and you're talking to somebody like that and you're like, how did you get there? In fact, on the radio this week, I heard somebody that was trying to like re-engage the idea that the Loch Ness Monster is real, that there's like this dinosaur that lives in a lake in Scotland. And they're like, hey, you can't, you can't just discount what seems crazy. You know, you got to prove it. And they're making all these rational arguments and it sounds so good. And then they ask them, so sir, what do you do? And he's like, well, I own a bunch of hotels on the edge of Loch Ness. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, I, I see what you're trying to do here. Uh, the, the, here's the thing. Um, and people that have done research on conspiracy theories, Elise Wang, for example, she's a professor. Um, she, she noticed that when you are isolated from a community that promotes truth is when you begin to progress toward those kind of crazy, illogical ends. That it takes steps to get there, but each of those steps can get you there. And, and we can joke about Bigfoot or Loch Ness Monster, but the reality is there's way more insidious conspiracy theories that actually lead to quite a bit of harm. Like a young college-age student who was curious and conflicted about the death of Trayvon Martin. And so he went to Wikipedia, which is a pretty unbiased, neutral site, to find out more about um, Trayvon Martin. Did I do something dumb just then? <laughs> All right, moving on. Um, totally knocked me off my game. He goes to Wikipedia and found, to read about Trayvon Martin, and he, and he found a phrase in that website that like, hooked him like a fish on the line. And so instead of investigating that more, he, he went back onto another website and Googled black on white crime, which led him to a white nationalist conspiracy site. And then from there, he went to another and another and another until two years later, he wrote his own manifesto about the topic. And on June 17th, 2015, Dylan Roof walked into an African-American Bible study and killed nine people, hoping to start a race war. And man, you might just say like, my tinfoil hat guy just wants to believe that aliens landed in Roswell, right? But truth matters. Because when you start going down that path, like the religious leaders as they're confronting Jesus, they, you can into a place where you kill somebody. You cause irreparable harm. 
And the reality is that logic isn't necessarily going to get you out of that. Logic and, and reason don't necessarily get you to a place of truth. Let me show you, for instance, I love this quote that was on a website I found this week. The, the society that wrote this. Society holds that there is a difference between believing and knowing. If you do not know something, you cannot demonstrate it by its first principles, then you should not believe it. We must, at the very least, know exactly how conclusions were made and the strengths and weaknesses behind those deductions. Our society emphasizes the demonstration and explanation of knowledge, which that, like, makes total sense. And I am with you 100% until I reveal to you which society it was. It was the Flat Earth Society. So there's, there's got to be this level of trust and community involved in truth. When Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he's not talking about some sort of philosophical premise. He's talking about the bo- his body. He's talking about himself. And if you can trust Jesus, that Jesus looks like who God is supposed to, to be. That Jesus looks like the best thing we can imagine of what God is supposed to be. Then you can get closer. Um, this was a quote by Daniel Dennett in his, his last book. He's talking about Andrew Wiles. If you don't know who Andrew Wiles is, he's a mathematician in England. And I, 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 didn't, I got through calculus in high school and then I just gave up. Like I was done after that. Um, but Andrew uh, Wiles is a fantastic mathematician. And he proved, he was the first person to prove in 400 years Fermi's last theorem, which basically says for any number that's greater than three, x to the third plus y to the third equals z to the third cannot be possibly true. And if you have no idea what that means, I don't either. I just read it. Um, but how, how do I know that Wiles proved it. And Wiles' solution is so complicated, I, could, I don't even know what the symbols mean. It's not even math anymore. It looks more like, like a vocabulary test that a two-year-old took poorly. I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. How do we know he did it? How do we know he proved it? Don't ask me to explain complex mathematics. What convinces me that he proved it is that a community of mathematicians put it under scrutiny and said, yep, that's it. He figured it out. And so there is this understanding that truth has to be shared in community. If you want to know what truth is, you look at what Jesus does and the way he lives, the way he dies. You look at his wisdom, and that's truth. But that truth is shared in community. So this idea of, like, my truth, it's not wrong. It's just second rate. And in my experience, when somebody wants to talk about my truth, it's because they haven't really thought their argument out and they realize they don't like the implications of being wrong, and so they just kind of want to retreat to individualism. Dennett's response is, we'd like to bring you into a conversation about your idea, but if, you consider, but if you're unable to consider arguments for and against your position, then we'll consider you on the sidelines. The lies of the devil are not so obvious. And sometimes we have to admit we've got more freight to hold on to a lie because it allows us to live in such a way that's comfortable or pain-free or easier for us than we'd like to admit. The most dangerous lie is an untruth that's swaddled in actual truth. 
The evil one plants seeds of doubt in our minds about God and the people around us. He twists truth into something that's unrecognizable. He whispers lies that we believe, and he does it so skillfully, we don't even realize it's happening like the religious leaders in John 8. We live and we breathe and we speak and, 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 and believe so many lies. When we actually hear the truth, when it stands in front of us, it sounds wrong. And there's all sorts of lies that we want to hold on to for various reasons. Lies that blame because we don't want to hold that responsibility ourselves. You always do this. You never do that. Lies that make us the martyr, that somehow elevate our own position greater than it needs to be. I'm the only one who cares about filling the blank, our finances, or finishing this project, or these people. There are lies that justify broken commitments. I married the wrong person. I married too young. I'm not good at this, and so it's time to bail. And lies that shame. No one cares about me. The lie that tells you I'm alone, I'm all alone. And I've had friends and college students and people that I love that have struggled with suicidal thoughts and have come to believe not only do I not matter, but the world would actually be better off if I ended my life. That's a lie. That's not from God. That's from the evil one. There are lies that enslave. I'm only as good, and this one's hard because it feels like it's true in capitalism. I'm only good as I am successful at the work I do. There's my value, there's my worth. Or lies that misdirect. I will only find joy or peace or safety if I'm perfect. The lies of the devil undermine the truth about God's existence and his love for his children, that you're not loved or that nothing you do makes any difference at all or nobody cares about you. If God cared about you, then, then he would do something so God's not even real. But the reality is that you are loved so deeply and completely and fully that you can't even possibly grasp how that is. Jesus died for us. Jesus cares about you. And so the remedy, the antidote to the lies of the evil one is, is truth. And in verse 31 and verse 32, if you hold on to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free from the slavery of lies. Jesus says, I am the truth. What does that mean? It's not just that he's telling the truth about who he is, the son of God. God is flesh in a unique and close relationship with the Father and the Spirit. Although that is true, that's not just what he's saying in this moment, but he is also saying, I am truth itself. I am the thing that will save you from the destructive lies of the devil. Jesus is the measuring stick by which you can know if an idea is an accurate representation of the way things really are. And so when you hear that voice that says, you're not worthy, or you're not beautiful, or you're not productive, or you're not useful, or the world would be better off without you, put that idea against God and see if it rests. Because what you will find is a God who loves you, the Son that cares for you, and the Holy Spirit that says no. It does not reflect reality. And the way you filter these things out is to replace them with ideas that are true. The battleground for spiritual warfare, we said this last week, but it bears repeating. The battleground of spiritual warfare exists almost completely in your mind. The only weapon, the only tool that the evil one has is lies. 
Untruth, that's the only weapon that exists. Out of that weapon comes every moment of despair and loss, sadness, all of those things, but it all rests in truth and lies. And the battleground is in your thoughts. It's nowhere else. So maybe it's significant that Jesus came as a rabbi, a teacher of truths that led to right ideas, that led to right practices. Paul agrees in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And if you spend very much time looking for the negative thoughts in your life, my guess is you're going to find a few. It usually doesn't take people very long to realize where those negative lies that are affecting our reality live. Uh, the problem with that is, like I just said, those lies... Uh, we believe the lies and we repeat the lies, so often they become indistinguishable from the truth or that we just simply don't take the time to look for them. We don't look for the lies of the evil ones in ourselves or coming from others or from the evil one because they're whipping around our heads all day long. We can't hurt all those cats. Paul advises us to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Examine it. Test it. Hold it up to the light against the truths of the word of God and see how it measures up. And if it's not true, let it go. I've been walking through this series with my friend Jacob, and he told me a story that I, I think is worth repeating. He, he began this exercise a couple of weeks ago, and he, he started paying attention to each of his negative thoughts. That's, it was just a, it was an act of mindfulness. He started to pay attention to when, when his own mind told him something that was negative about himself. And he paid attention to the ones that were reoccurring, that happened frequently. And it, they examined whether or not they were actually true or just felt true at the moment. He held it up to the light. And then he tried to see if there was something in Scripture that spoke to that if it wasn't true. And so the reoccurring theme that he found were the lies of lack. And I love the way that he said that, the lies of lack. And they usually start with, well, I just don't have enough time, or I don't have enough help, or I don't have enough energy, or I don't have enough patience, or I don't have enough willpower to, to deal with this right now. And he noticed that those thoughts made him feel self-righteous and led him to anger and frustration. And that led him to blaming others or give up working on something that's worthwhile because he didn't have enough he was living in the lies of lack. But then he realized that the truth of God that he began to use to, to fight against those messages came from Psalm 23. That's a psalm that may be very familiar with you. It begins with 23 verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, and he found this translation, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The lies of lack told Jacob that there's always something missing in his life, but that's not true. He actually had a lot. The lies of lack told him that he was alone, but that's not true. The Lord is with him and with everyone, all of you too. 
The lies of lack tell us that we're unprovided for, that we're on our own, but that's not true. The Lord is our shepherd. He's with us. He leads us. He guards us. He provides for us. And so I want to pause at the end of the service today, and I want to offer just a real brief time of of reflection and, and contemplation. I want you to think about what this means for yourself. Last week, we spent some time just dwelling in Scripture and hearing the hook that tied to you, and I hope that you carried it with you last week as you went on in your week. I I hope that you had a a note on your phone where you're able to write down that verse and come back to it day after day after day. I want you to do something a little more intentional this week. And so I want you to pull out your phone because there's there's three steps that I need you to engage in. I want us to examine how to take captive every thought, especially paying attention to the lies, the words that aren't true that you find yourself living with because they're reoccurring. They'll come back frequently like Jacob's lies of lack. How do we identify those thoughts? Uh, it's, it's a place of pain or a place of comfortability. Those are actually the same thing in your life. When you find yourself in a place of pain, uh, more often than not, you want to self-soothe that so you immediately move to comfortability. Uh, If you find yourself in an argument or a frustration moment in your household or at your job and your temptation is to pull out your phone and just find something that makes you feel good, that's the place. That's the place of pain. That's you self-soothing. It happened right in that moment. Um, Maybe you have a selfish, disordered desire. There's something that's out of whack in your desires that God hasn't redeemed yet. That's the place where you identify it. Then I want you to challenge it. Test it. I want you to hold it up to the light. Don't just accept it. Don't let it flow past your mind into your heart or into your body. I want you to challenge it in your mind. Ask yourself the hard question. Do I really lack everything or am I just bored? And then replace it. And for Jacob, it took literally speaking the truth into the mirror. Every morning he would find himself, he'd look at himself dead in the eye in the mirror, and he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And that was the spiritual practice that began to transform his mind, that allowed him to combat the lies of the evil one. So this week, take this challenge. Find the lie that the evil one is telling you. Hold it up to the light. And then find a word from God that will challenge it. And I I think scripture is incredibly useful for this. But I was noticing as as we were worshiping today, the lines of the music that we sang to one another also hold those truths. You're a child of God. You have been set free. You're no longer a slave to sin. I want to close by this short story. The Secret Service is part of the Treasury Department, and part of its job is not only protecting uh, the president, but also to, def- to detect counterfeit bills. And it's really curious how those two things got put in the same spot, but it doesn't matter. When they're, treating, uh, when they're teaching Secret Service agents how to detect counterfeit bills, this is how they don't do it. They could take the Secret Service agent into a room and show them the hundreds of thousands of counterfeit bills that they've 
captured, right? And they could show them how this one was printed on this type of Xerox printer or how this one looks, it had a, a spelling error right here. Um, and they could show them all of those things. That's not how they teach Secret Service agents. They instead put them in a room with real dollar bills. And they asked them to stay there, to meditate on the money, which sounds wrong, but you get what I'm saying, um, to feel it with their fingers, to notice the texture of the paper, because dollar bill paper is kind of unique, right? To smell it, because the ink smells differently, to look very closely. They don't give them a bunch of counterfeits so that they can know what the real thing is, the true thing is. They give them the real thing, and they ask them to meditate on that space, So this week, track it. Find the lie. Hold it up to the light. But way more importantly, spend time experiencing the heart of Jesus. How Jesus loved people. How Jesus cared for people. How Jesus' wisdom shaped people. How he was not afraid to start a fight in the street if it meant that somebody could finally learn the truth. Will you please stand for our benediction? Highland, I pray that you are bold this week. I pray that you are full of courage to fight the lie and to hear the truth that God loves you so dearly that he sent his son. It is that truth, his son, that will set us free. Go in peace.